0: Oh, hang on. I need my clicker. Oh no, I can start, it's just you won't see slides. There we go. Greetings. We're on. Excellent. Welcome, welcome to Wednesday night. Welcome to Calvary. Ready to get started? Let, let's open up with prayer and we'll uh, we'll jump right in and get this log on here. Father, we bless you. We lift this evening before you and and pray that uh, for your help this evening. I pray very specifically that as we go through this, you would help me to to speak, to share, to teach those things which are in accordance with your word and. And we ask, we know that your word does not return void, but it accomplishes its purposes. And so, Father, we intend now to open our hearts, our minds, our souls to hear and to receive and to perceive what it is you want to speak to us. And uh, Father, may it be transformative. May what we um, may we understand our, the, the scriptures better. And in that understanding, may it be not just a soulish, but a heart understanding that's transformative. For that is your heart, to bring that, the heart of change into us. So we bless you. We thank you. Pray for those on their way. Pray you cover them. We thank you that we're even able to be here tonight in your protection that's been over us. In Jesus' name. Amen? All right. So, All <clears> right. <throat> Working through our series, I dare you not to bore me with the Bible by Michael Heiser. Um, oh, there we go. there we go. Uh, if you don't have the book, um, highly recommend the book and as I'm uh, you know say each week, I'm not doing it in order. I'm doing some you know, I'm going a lesson from the Old Testament, a lesson from the New Testament. you read it in order, read it the way I'm doing it. that's fine. <laughs> most of them. A lot of, some of them will build. You need some to get on them, but a lot of them stand on their own. A lot of the, the lessons. So, um, and uh, sorry, this is not lining up right. There we go. Is that better? I think so. Um, so this is lesson five. This is week five in, in doing this. And uh, like I said, this is a, this is the main the main source, the book that, that we're working through. Um, the so why are we doing this? What's the whole point? And the whole point is so that we can better understand our Bibles. And there's a lot of passages in the scriptures that are weird, that are strange, that are difficult, that are confusing, that are perplexing. Um, and there are things that are that seem insignificant. And turns out all of these things uh, um, are are important, important for us to know and to understand. And I would submit as we learn these things, all of a sudden we'll start making connections across the scriptures in ways that uh, um, we hadn't done before. And this is one of the goals for me, is that we get a grasp of the unity of the scriptures. How there is so much that's connected with all of the diversity of the scriptures. The diversity of writing, the diversity of authors, the diversity of purposes. There's this incredible unity. And by a lot of the, by understanding a lot of these weird, perplexing, strange, quote unquote, boring details, a lot of times it brings it all together and all of a sudden it opens up to us. So to really connect the dots in our scriptures. And so to do this, um, we remember uh, that the Bible wasn't written to us, though it was written for us. And which means then, if I want to figure it out, I want to understand it, I got to understand what did it mean? In, in its context. And so we spend a lot of time doing that and exploring that way. All right. Um, so uh, I, I'm not going to do a full summary. Um, I'm just going to talk about the topics we've gone over so far. I'm just going to hit what the topics we have gone over um, and uh, welcome you. You can ask any questions on those topics when we get to the Q&A time later, um, or uh, I encourage you to go look them up if you haven't looked them up. Um, we, so far out of the Old Testament we've talked about the the Old Testament understanding of cosmology we've talked about um, uh, the fact that the scripture so much in the scripture just reflects the culture of Israel which was very similar to its culture around so we, we, we discussed how do we find important differences now that's going to come out in tonight's lesson I'm bringing I'm emphasizing this one because we're going to see this come out in tonight's lesson where There, there's there's things about Israel that are very common to the culture in which they're in, which means then when we see those differences, that they should stand out to us. Um, that, That there was an upgrading, if you will, to the Bible, understanding how inspiration works. And that there that editors who came along later who were compiling this updated certain things so that the readers at the time would understand what it was they were reading and we went through examples of that and really understanding inspiration spell checking I like this one was showing us that there are certain words in the original text that are still you know they're, they're, we, we have an idea what they meant, but they really don't we don't we don't know fully now um, and so we want to be careful using those texts as uh, um, uh, we want to use those texts, but use them as secondary to texts that are more clear. Um, and then the, the the last thing we've talked about in the Old Testament is why circumcision. And that whole understanding that Israel was supernaturally created. Their beginning was supernatural. And that su- su- circumcision, um, it becomes the constant reminder that this was God's miraculous doing. So we did that. Um, which then really kind of gives credence to the New Testament. Actually, the New, it's an idea that the New Testament gets from Deuteronomy of circumcision of the heart through the spirit. Um, again, a supernatural birth or rebirth. Um, so in the New Testament, we talked about Jesus declaring war on hell itself and understanding what that reference is in cosmic geography and terrestrial geography. In other words, earthly geography and the overcoming. Um, then we looked at guardian angels uh, that, and, and had that whole conversation that I love the scripture in Hebrews you know it 's like be hospitable because you may one day be uh, entertaining angels and not knowing it, so be a hospitable person um, and the third thing we looked at was misquotes Does the New Testament misquote the Old Testament because sometimes the New Testament authors use the, New, the Old Testament in ways that that we um, uh, that, that That we may not fully understand, and so we we delved into that a little bit, and then finally, um, uh, we we went into uh, Jesus saying that he saw Satan fall like lightning, and when did that happen and what the kind of the interesting conclusion we came to is a lot of people thought that Jesus was talking about something in the past when in fact, he was talking about the result of the kingdom of God coming via his incarnation, his um, life, death, burial, resurrection, and the full consummation of that, of Satan's destruction when he returns. All right, so those were the subjects we've covered so far. Tonight, the two subjects we're going to get into, the first one is the abandoned child in the basket case. I love that title. The abandoned child in the basket case. So uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then we're going to spend a fair amount of time talking about the healing serpent in the New Testament. The healing serpent. What's that? What do you mean a healing serpent? What's that about? So, and we'll see what, what, what's going on with that. Um, so, jumping to our Old Testament sub, uh, subject, the abandoned child in the basket case. You'll find a whole discussion, Heiser's discussion on it from page 19 to 21 in, the, in his text. All right. So, I'm going to start off with a quote from him. He says this. He says, in modern stories, people... Um, Destined for greatness rarely start off privilege, right when you when we hear a great story an epic story Somebody who's destined for greatness. You usually hear some kind of a humble beginning They're they're dropped off at the doorstep of an orphanage or they're abandoned in the rain There's some type of of a of a humble beginning So this motif That we still have today in our stories is an ancient motif. It goes back for literally millennia Writers use the abandoned child theme to identify a character that rises from virtual obscurity to become some type of a privileged hero, to have this status. Um, it's, and, and, and likewise, we find this motif in the biblical account of Moses. Um, but is that the whole story? Is that really the whole story? Are we just finding that motif? Now, what I want to point out is, um, uh, and this is really important. These that that, this isn't this is in your text. This is free. This is a little bit extra here for you. So, you know, you can jot a note or two. Um, Much of about 40 percent of the Bible's narrative stories. It's told to us as stories. When when these stories are given to us. When when you are telling a story, there are certain details you leave in. (laughs) Let me put me back up. Say it this way. Anybody here have kids? Anybody ever say to your kid, what happened? And then your kid begin to weave the story. Anybody ever have your kid weave the story and there are certain details they choose to tell you. And then certain details they choose to leave out. Now any of us have the you know, particular uh, 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 children who knew how to tell you exactly what was true. But also put it in such a way that you weren't really getting the full story. Right. So as the author of that story, your child was was giving you what happened, but was putting it in such a way to communicate to you what they wanted to communicate. Now, um, I, I say it that way because that's how all stories are done. Not every story gives you every single detail about everything. Stories have to pick and choose what they do. Otherwise, we'd be here for there's an infinite number of details. You can never stop talking about the details. You have to stop at some level, and so when we tell stories, we always make choices as to what we've included in the story and what we haven't, right? And we make those choices because there's a purpose behind the story. So we can, we, can, we can flip this around. As a parent telling stories, there are many times when I would tell my kids a story of when I was growing up. Did I necessarily tell them every detail? No, but I told them those points and those things that were important to incorporate in the lessons that I wanted them to learn. Very similar in how the Bible is written. The Bible is not written to be a history book, though it contains history. It was written to teach us about God and His erupting in this world, the Kingdom of God erupting in this world, and His dealing with humanity in, in, in that and so the stories are going to contain certain details certain not. They will be, they will be formed in certain ways. The st- authors very much will borrow from mo- modern motifs to retell their stories. Because these were ways that people would understand the message. By putting it in a way, the story in a way, that was common for them to understand, they would understand the message they were trying to give through the story. So... These are important to keep in mind when we when when I, a, you'll see why I say that, why I gave that introduction as we go into this lesson. All right. So Moses story. What's his story? You have Pharaoh. You have this particular Pharaoh who comes up, who doesn't remember the 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 the, the beneficial relationship of Israel and, and Egypt, and, and he's threatened by the Hebrews. Um, Their population is growing up in the north of egypt and and he sees them now as a threat as an enemy And he enslaves them and then finally he gives a command That the infant boys be killed, right? He starts with the midwives and when the midwives can't do it. He tells them just he tells everybody just kill the infant boys And so here it is i'm going to read the story to you Um, and you can read along in your bible if you want i'm using the esv here So here it goes when you serve as midwife to the hebrew women and see them this is pharaoh talking on the burstle if it is a son you shall kill him but if it is a daughter she shall live verse 17 but the midwives feared god and did not do as the king of egypt commanded them and he but let the male children live so the king of egypt called the midwives and said to them why have you done this and let the male children live But the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. You know, what did they do? They already told a fib. Why? Because they saw that preserving life was higher than obeying Pharaoh. And so they wanted to preserve life, and they acted in a way to preserve life. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Verse 21. And, the, but, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, this isn't, again, part of tonight's lesson, but, um, but this is the way the Bible works. I make them Kind of help us understand the Bible. How did Pharaoh want to destroy... The Israelites. Right here. What does it say? Kill the boys, how? Throwing them in the river. Interesting. Interesting. How did God end up destroying Egypt? In the water. First, in the water. In the water. Pharaoh, that's how you want to destroy? See, this is not by accident. We need to pay attention to these details. The Bible is speaking to us so many ways. So many ways. But that's that's again, that's free. That wasn't that part. But I want us to I'm trying to get us to, 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 to pay attention to these details there. They're not just see, the author's giving us a detail not just to enhance the story, but to teach us a lesson. That's how you want to do this? It's called an eye for an eye. Anybody heard that before? Hmm. Which, by the way, is not a principle for our behavior one to another, but is a principle of just governance. Is God a just God? What's he showing? Huh. Fascinating. Huh? All right. So what happens? The mother's, the, there's the, Moses' mother hides her baby boy for three months, and she comes up with this risky plan. What's her plan? So now we're in Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him, she, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. But she, put, uh, she put the, not but she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. So she makes this little ark. Um, and yes, we're supposed to get the picture of an ark. Makes this little ark. She puts Moses in it. Um, and she covers it. Which, by the way, how was the ark covered? Bitumen and pitch. Now the detail. Covered the same way. Hmm. Um, so she covers it, and, uh, which, uh, and, and she floats it down. Now, Miriam comes to play in here. This is the older sister of Moses, and she's following the ark. She's following what's going on. So let's join the story here in verse 4. And his sister stood a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. Now, did, does, does everyone know where the daughter of Pharaoh is bathing? Yeah, everyone knows where this is. The, the, this, we're, we're meant to see that she purposely wanted it to go here. She purposely wanted this basket to go here. Um, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, she knows who it is. What has she been commanded to do by Pharaoh? Throw in the water. Interesting. Then her, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so Miriam speaks up, "Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you?" So let me back up. And let me tell you what the Bible's saying here. They didn't have formula. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have formula. Shall I come get a nurse for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Of course, you know, I'm not saying who she is. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So not only does she not have to hide him anymore, she gets to wean her own child. And she gets paid to wean her own child. Um. And, and she's under the protection of Pharaoh, of Pharaoh's household. She's under the protection so no one can come along and take the baby. All right. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So Pharaoh's daughter adopts her. Um, she named him Moses. Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So this is absolutely fascinating to me is absolutely fascinating. Look at how God's working here. God's working his plan in spite of Pharaoh's plan. Right? How did, how did the Israelites get to Egypt? God worked his plan in spite of the brothers' plan. That's how they got to Egypt. How are they going to get out of Egypt? God's going to work his plan in spite of Pharaoh's plan. Can, can I tell you that that's the cross as well? Because Paul says, had the rulers of this world known they would have lost their power, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God worked his plan in spite of the enemy's plan. The enemy had a plan. He was going to take Jesus out. But he ends up taking himself out. Do you see what's going on here? Now, what, should this, what is the story trying to tell us? Do we look around us and look at the plans of the world and go, God, how are you going to work your plan? Or do uh, uh, do we look at the world around us and go, God, you can't work your plan because the world won't let you. Are we looking for the way God's going to work his plan in spite of the way the world works? Are we standing in faith in that? Or are we the other way around, afraid of whether or not God's going to get his work done because of what's going on in the world? So Moses comes, this is fascinating. Moses literally comes under the protection of the house of the very one trying to kill him. That's God. He comes under the protection by being the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter of the very one who said he should die. All right. So now here's the thing. Because um, that's in the Bible. It says here's the thing in the Bible. So. <clears throat> um Ancient literature, I'm quoting here from Heiser. Ancient literature outside the Bible attests to several stories in which a child, perceived as a threat by an enemy, is abandoned and later spared by divine intervention in otherworldly circumstances. This motif isn't only found in the Bible. You'll find other stories in which you've got, you know, this this, this child, there's a child, perceived as a threat, as an enemy. They're abandoned, but later somehow divine intervention um, brings them to uh to a place of of victory there's roughly 30 stories in antiquity that have survived out of uh, out of mesopotamia canaan greece egypt rome india there's like 30 stories like this now we're, we're gonna um we're gonna take a look at one of them this is going to be the sargon birth legend sargon's a name it's the name of sargon the great um and it's a mesopotamian story so mesopotamia think you know um babel um babylon um Assyria, that, that, that region over there, where, where Abraham came out of, uh, um, Ur, Chaldees. All right, so this is the most parallel story to what we have in the scriptures. So this birth story goes all, um, uh, is, is, um, refers to a time, I'll say it this way, this birth story refers to a time about 2000 BC. So about 2000 BC, you have Sargon the Great. He's an Akkadian emperor. He's the ruler of many Sumerian city-states. And, and so this, his life, um, his documented life, is several hundreds of years before Moses, Sargon the Great, several hundreds of years. So we're, we're back, you know, around 2000 B.C. Um, Moses is going to be, you know, depending on what dating you use, somewhere uh, around 1400, 1300 B.C., somewhere in that um, uh, time frame, 1500. Um, so uh, and I'm quoting here. The infant boy is born into great peril. Um, This is Sargon as a child. He's born into great peril. His mother is a high priestess, and he's illegitimate. Consequently, his mother sets him adrift on a river in a reed basket. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. The boy is rescued and raised by a gardener named Aki in the town of Kish. He he becomes a humble gardener in Aki's service until the goddess Ishtar takes an interest in him, setting him on the path to kingship. So this is is kind of the story of the birth story of Sargon the Great. Now, should we assume then, because we've got ancient stories that are very close and very similar, should we assume that Moses' birth story is actually... You know, just just a story based on this legend that's about this guy who was hundreds of years before him. And my well, uh, my response is the same response Heiser puts in his book: unlikely. But why? Why unlikely? And I'll, and I'm the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is what critical scholars do. They 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 open up the scriptures. They go, well, here's Moses and here's this birth story. I've got 50 other birth stories that are kind of like it, and I got one that's like really close to it right here. I mean, so so this is just this is just a legend to try to build up who Moses is, right, right, and so unlikely. Why? Well, um, like I said, Sargon the Great. We've got ancient accounts of his life. You know, actual, an actual real Sargon going back to around 2000 BC. We have actual accounts of that. So historians, I haven't seen them, but this is what we're told by historians. By uh, Heiser um, talks about it. So, however. This birth account, this legendary birth account, the only place it's found is in four fragmentary tablets. And these tablets, three of them are Neo-Assyrian, so they're between 934 and 605 B.C. Now, to remember, if you're looking at B.C., it goes backwards, right? If we're going from A.D., we go year 1 to 2000, and that's the way you go forward. But you go forward going from 900 to 600 because we're going backwards in time, I already follow that? That I confuse anybody on that? All right, so you're going to go 900 years before Christ to six to, to 600 years before Christ. So there are three fragmentary tablets from that period. And then we get a, a Neo-Babylonian period, which is that time when we talked about Daniel. The writing of Daniel was Neo-Babylonian period. So the Neo-Assyrian period would be like, um, the beginning of it would be around the time of like King David. And then going forward all the way through... Um, uh, uh, Josiah, around around the time of King Josiah, so that would be Neo Assyrian period. Um, if you want to put it in a biblical time frame, if you, you you kind of like that kind of thing. All right, so from where 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 in the world did we come up with this story then? If these are all we have, these fragments. Well, it's interesting. There's a there's an Assyrian king from the Neo Assyrian period that you know that time between the, during the kings of Israel. Um, and his name is Sargon II. Notice he's not Sargon Jr. It's not his son. He's Sargon II. And what's, uh, and what's likely happened is that he commands this legend to be written. Why? Why would he command this legend to be written? Because, it, because he's taken this guy's name as his name. See, Sargon the Great is this great historical creature, everybody a, creature, a, a person everybody knows about, this great historical king, and now he's taken the name of Sargon, and by taking the name of Sargon, is relating himself to it, and now he creates this birth story following this pattern, showing that this Sargon the Great was such a, a, an awesome person, now that makes him this revived Sargon figure. He's the new Sargon, he's the revived figure. So this would suggest that the birth legend was composed for propaganda purposes. No, politicians never use propaganda. No. <clears throat> That's modern. <laughs> so this is, but, but here's the point. The point is that this story, though it refers to a person who is hundreds of years before Moses, is likely written hundreds of years after him. Yeah. As a there's a well, a very famous uh, um, storyteller who would say, "Now you know the rest of the story." <laughs> Who's that? Paul. Yeah, Paul Harvey. Anyway, all right. So why is this important? Why are we talking about this? What does this have to do with Moses in this story? Here, let's go into this. And this is I'm quoting from Heiser here. The existence of stories like the Sargon birth legend actually help us understand the biblical story. We can take some from that and actually understand the biblical story better. We can learn more about our Bibles. They show that the abandoned child theme was a popular literary strategy for the ancients. You see, this wasn't, uh, um, it's a means by which they communicated, they they, uh, um, uh, used narrative to teach. They used it to introduce a figure who rises from mundane origins after gaining favor from fate or the divine. So they're showing, they're using these stories to show the hand of the supernatural in people's lives. This is how the ancients were using these stories. Then you see you have these individuals and the hand of the supernatural is in their lives, all right? The common elements in these rags to riches stories helped ancient audiences identify with the central figure and develop respect for his achievements. So so they could see by seeing that this was a rags to riches person they could say hey I I, I identify with that don't we do the same thing when well, we find points of convergence to the lives of other people around us? If we see leaders who had points of convergence, we can, we can see their humble beginnings and, and, and these things and, and connect to them. And now the fact that they have risen to greatness, well, that builds us up. It edifies us because we have this similar background. And so that's how these ancient stories would be used, right? So the biblical authors knew these ancient stories. Um, and they often draw from well-known stories and motifs to show the greatness of God. They, they, they're using that motif, and as they, have, um, as they have narrative to tell about individuals in the Scripture, they use that motif as their storytelling structure. Does that make sense? Everybody follow that. It's not that they're fabricating it. They're not fabricating the story. They're just putting the story in a way that follows a pattern for the people to understand and learn a lesson, does everybody follow that? Okay. Um, furthermore, Moses' story is more than just a parallel, and and this is what they do: they'll take this 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 familiar pattern, they'll put the story, the, the, and and so the people are reading it. And they go, I recognize this pattern. I recognize this story. I see what's going on. But notice Moses finds favor and protection under Pharaoh. Who to the Egyptians is quasi-divine. So there's this supernatural protection for a time. But now the story twists. And all of a sudden it becomes different than the normal story. This story doesn't follow the pattern. What happens? Um, Remember what I said earlier. Remember I told you there was a point that we studied before. We need to remember because we're going to bring it up tonight. What's the point? The point is we need to pay attention to how culture is the same to look for those moments when they're different Because when we find those moments that they're different That's when the Bible's really trying to speak something to us So here's this story. That's the same, but now all of a sudden it's different now the bible is trying to tell us something By making it different by giving it this twist What's it telling us? Moses flees the kingdom in fear for his life from pharaoh. So this one In the normal story, he's protected and rises to greatness. In this story, the very one he was protected from now wants to kill him again. Now he has to leave Egypt and he lives out in the wilderness for 40 years uh, uh, um, uh, afraid. So from there, the story is re-patterned. We get a new pattern for the story. It's it's sculpted differently, and it's told to us in a different way. In the wilderness of Midian, Yahweh appears to Moses, now an obscure shepherd. Now no longer the prince in Egypt, he's an obscure shepherd. In, In his own words, he's slow of speech and tongue. So he tells Moses, the Lord tells Moses to act as his spokesperson before Pharaoh and lead his people out of Egypt. All of a sudden, this quasi-divine king, who is after Pharaoh, is, uh, uh, the, the very one he's after to kill, um, the, that, that he represents, is now going to be confronted by him. This is a whole turn of the story. This is a whole turn of events. This is a whole twisting. This is a whole looking, you know, telling, whoa, this story is different. It's unique. So Moses stands out against the stories of the ancient cultures because he isn't promoted like the chosen figures. He's actually, now, what was he? He was saved and demoted. He went from being in a palace to being a shepherd in the wilderness. It's not until he's saved and demoted to poverty that he's actually able to lead others to salvation. Huh huh, this story's trying to tell us something. He was humbled, so humbled, he says, I'm slow of speech, I can't talk, I'm, you got the wrong guy. That he's now able to lead others to salvation. Now, so Does this remind anybody of something Paul says in, to the Philippians? Have this mind in you, which mind was in Christ, who though, being in the very form God, did not consider uh, 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 equality with god something to be held on to but took on the form of a slave and came in the likeness of man and having been found in the body of a human uh, became obedient to god obedient even to the point of death crucifixion so that now he has the name by which all mankind are saved Hmm. somebody say fascinating Coming out of the story, by the twist in the story, by what's different in the story, by how they, 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 they are foreshadowing how God's moving. Let me keep going here. He is the new archetype of the chosen hero, one who is promoted only for the benefit of others. God comes down to, benefit, to promote him. Why? Because I want him to be my spokesperson so he can go save my people. He's to lay his life down. So, on the one side, we have stories of worldly kingdoms. On the other side, we have Moses' story that doesn't highlight Moses. What does it do? It articulates God's remarkable work for his kingdom. So we can take these stories and we can see these common motifs and we can say to the critics who want to say well the bible is just copying it's like no it's not the bible's using it to show how it's different and we can learn from it Isaiah wrote this for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts heiser finishes out the chapter, he says this, his values are different from ours, and we can be grateful for that. Amen. Amen. All right. Was that not cool? Yeah. That was that was a lot of fun. So we had the abandoned child in the basket case. That was the that was our first one here. The abandoned child in the basket case. So now we're gonna go over jump over to the New Testament. Can we do that? You wanna jump into the New Testament? We'll look through all right. So now we're gonna look at the healing serpent the healing serpent, but for that, I need more water, all right, so what's this healing serpent thing, so um, anybody here, can anybody here recite John three sixteen? all right, so I'll help us, here we go, for God so loved the world, we can say this together, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How many have heard that verse before? How many, could, you know, many of us here could recite that from memory, right? We could see that. Now, how many can recite John 3, 14 and 15, the two verses before it? All right, but so, um, so that we know what it is, here it is. And as Moses, this is what comes right before what we just read. This comes right before it. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, weird scripture. Why in the world is Jesus referring to the serpent lifting up in the wilderness and comparing himself to that? Um, what What's going on here? Quote from Heiser, Jesus' words in these two verses have generated confusion and controversy. <clears throat> You see that might be the case, right? So the easy part, let's take care of the easy part first. John three fifteen, the second verse, that's the easy part. We, you know, there's not a lot of controversy here. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I mean, that doesn't, you know, there's not a lot of confusion what he's saying there. He's saying it, it's, it's declaring the gospel. It's Jesus is the true object of faith for all who would have eternal life. Everyone who wants eternal life, that's found in Jesus. It's found in his name. You believe in him place your faith and your trust in him. All right, so that part we got. But how does that connect to a surface, to this serpent in the wilderness? You know, what, what, what's, what's going on here? What's happening? So that's the hard part. Jesus is comparing his destiny on the cross to a serpent lifting up in the wilderness. He says, just as the serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. He's comparing his destiny on the cross, the Son of Man being lifted up on the cross, to this serpent that was lifted up on a pole in the wilderness. Why would Jesus make that comparison? So, Jesus' reference, Jesus references, um, by talking about this wilderness, uh, the, the, the serpent on the, on the pole, he's literally referencing one of the complaining stories as the, as the Israelites have been delivered out of Egypt before they get into the Promised Land, how many of you know? You know, it's like I think in, in the book of Numbers, it, is it Numbers? It says these ten times you have complained. You know, it talks about these various points in which there were complaints. Well, this he's referencing one of these complaining stories that they have in the wilderness, um, and uh, we're going to actually read that story together. So, if you want to read in your Bibles, so we'll be in Numbers chapter twenty-one. You want to read along on the screen? You can. Again, like I'm using the ESV on this one as well. From Mount Hor, they set out. By the way, to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. God's supernaturally providing for them manna from heaven. You know, we loathe your provision, God. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died And the people came to Moses and said we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you Pray to the Lord so that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people Then the Lord said to Moses make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it, shall live. So, so here's the story. Um, they complained against God. I mean, now, what the story is wanting, wanting to tell us here, when it says they're complaining, it doesn't just mean like, you know, they had a bad day. All right? You know, so it wasn't just somebody made an offhanded comment. You know, man, can we have something else? You know, it wasn't like that. No, no, no. It's talking about a heart attitude. At which they actually saw God's deliverance as a problem, and they are actually whining against God's deliverance, God's leader, and God's supernatural provision. Okay, so this is a true. This is a, re, a rebellious heart. They're demonstrating a rebellious heart, and so as a result of that, um, the consequence of that, there, uh, uh, fiery, God sends these fiery serpents in among them, and people are getting bit. And they're venomous snakes. Fiery is a reference to being a venomous snake. And it's killing people. They're dying as a result of this. And so they realize, oh my goodness, uh, we've sinned against God. It actually causes them. You see, the Torah actually talks about this, that God will send, uh, when the people rebel, God will send um, uh, uh, tribulation that they might turn their heart and return to him. You know, I would say this, not every time we go through something hard and difficult is it God trying to punish us. But if we saw suffering, hardness, and difficulty as redemptive, we would go through it much better and actually go through it in connection with God. If we as we were going through things that are hard, as we are going through things that are difficult, I saw this in a testimony of someone recently. She was she just went through just massively hard, difficult things. And she and she, she described at how she came to peace in it, is literally saying, Lord, I, I'm crying out for you to deliver me from this, nonetheless. Nonetheless. I know you have redemptive purposes in suffering. And so I literally offer my suffering back to you. I offer it back to you. What a beautiful thing. What an incredibly beautiful thing. We don't have, that, that's, that's not well enough established in our theology, because most of our theology is the moment something bad's happening, it's from the devil, not God. And we just got to shout it down long enough or claim something else long enough to get rid of it. Instead of saying, God, what redemptive purpose do you want to work in my life through this? No, D-d-d-d- was she praying for God to deliver her? Yeah, absolutely. It is completely appropriate to pray for God to deliver you from it. But the surrender of the heart to allow herself to walk through it with God so that God could have his good purposes no matter what. That's beautiful. That's the cross. All right, but that's not what's going on here. In this case, it's God bringing the suffering so that the heart of the people would return to him. And that's what happens. The part of the people return to him. They, 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 want, they want out. They realize, oh, my goodness, we've sinned against God. We've sinned against Moses. And, and, and so Moses intercede for us. Intercede for us. So Moses, so Moses sets to praying, right? And, and God responds to his prayer. Now, how does God answer Moses' prayer? Now, what, what does God not do? God could have just got rid of it. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's not what he does. He actually instructs Moses. He says, okay, I'm I'm answering your your praying. You've called on me. This is what you do. Go out, set up a pole, and make a bronze serpent, and put the bronze serpent on the pole. Now, they're still going to get bit by snakes. But when they get bit by a snake, if they look at the pole, they'll live. If they turn to the pole, they'll live. Isn't that fascinating? That's a fascinating story. All right. What's going on here? So Moses made a bronze serpent, and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So God, this is Heiser, I'm quoting here. God punished their impatience and lack of faith by sending venomous, fiery snakes into the camp. After many fatalities, the people begged Moses to intercede with God on their behalf. God relented and instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole. Anyone bitten by, by a serpent would be healed by gazing at the bronze serpent. Everybody follow the story, the narrative, what's happening here? All right. So this is an easy parallel. What's the easy parallel? You have the serpent on the pole. You have Jesus on the cross. Okay? We can see that. We can make sense. We can make sense of that much. That much we can see. Right? But it brings up questions. It should cause us to kind of wonder. Why didn't God just directly heal the people? I mean, he could have, right? We pray that all the time. Lord, I'm sick. Lord, bring your healing. Notice, God had a path for healing that wasn't direct in this case. Interesting. Uh, Now, here's another question. Wasn't that an idol? I mean, it's a bronze serpent on a pole. Didn't they just make an idol? Aren't they violating the second commandment by doing this? The answer is no, because it wasn't something for them to worship. It actually, later in the story, actually does become an idol, and, and that's a different part of the story. You can look that up. That's, that's a commercial for your own study later. But anyway, not here. It's not an idol. Um, Wouldn't the Israelites, here's another question. Wouldn't the Israelites have recoiled at the association of healing with a serpent? I mean, what's the first Bible story that comes to mind when you think serpent? Adam and Eve. So, I mean, wouldn't that be exactly we recoil? The, the, the Adam and Eve, that's the, that's the that's, you know, this, why, why would you want to give us a serpent? Wouldn't they have recoiled from that? And the answer to that is no. But why? So, the first thing we're going to look at is not out of Eden. Not out of Eden. What does that mean? So, the serpent on the pole was not the serpent in the garden. This is not a parallel we, see because notice in our mindset It's strange and weird because the first serpent we think of is the one in the garden That's the first one that comes to mind one in the garden, right? That's not the one they would have thought of That's not the one they would have thought of remember we're trying to understand what they would have thought of not what we think of Okay, all right So the serpent in the garden why why is it not the one because the serpent in the garden? What does he do? He acts independently he doesn't, he doesn't act according to God's will, and he's opposing God. The serpent on the pole isn't doing any of that. He, he's subservient because it was something that was created by a servant of God. He's doing God's will, and he's not opposing God, but part of the repentance of the people. So it's, it, the motif is it's, it's just wrong. The only thing in common is serpent. That's the only thing in common. Now, here's a logical fallacy. I'm going to teach you a logical fallacy. Logical fallacies are ways that we recognize illogical arguments, falsities, false truth. It's called the law of the undisputed middle. And this is what it is. Just because two things have one thing in common do not mean they have everything in common. Just because two things have one thing or something in common does not mean they have everything in common. And I hear that fallacy all the time. People make this fallacy. Well, I mean, does this mean, you know. So, no. No. You have to make the distinctions, and we just made several distinctions. All right. But so the biting serpents. So if we think about them, the ones that were, in the, that were biting, were they like the serpent in the garden? No, because they were clearly God's instrument for, for judging sin. They weren't, they weren't an enemy of God bringing sin. They were God's instrument for judging sin. So the biting ones, the fiery serpents, neither did they represent the serpent in the garden. And the one on the pole, once again, was the instrument of God's healing those who were punished. So we got, we got a serpent that is, a, that is an instrument for bringing God's judgment. Um, and uh, we have a serpent that's an instrument for bringing God's healing. All right. So what about magic? Do you think it might be magic? Now, what would most of us say here right away? Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why Heiser does it. Because actually, it's the other way around. I'm quoting Heiser. You know what? The what? No, um, there's a, uh, we'll just catch. Actually, there's a magic component, and we'll see what I, what I mean by that. It's not what most of us think by magic, but it's, it's, it's a component. So, and I'm quoting Heiser here. And part of the answer to why a serpent is found in ancient practice of what's called sympathetic magic, sympathetic magic. Now, what is that? It's this idea that a person afflicted by an object can be cured or delivered by an image of the same object if i'm afflicted, okay so actually what's really fascinating to me if you know anything about homeopathy there's a there's a principle with homeopathy there right one of the ways homeopathic um treatments work is they take a little bit of the thing you're afflicted with to create their 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 doses it's kind of similar to a vaccine right a vaccine you know well not all vaccines anyway real vaccines um Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't go on down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. In the absence of sophisticated medical knowledge, ancient cultures sought cures, sought cures for physical ailments or perceived curses by such means. This is some of the means. We can find uh, multiple or several examples of this ancient medical approach in other places in the Old Testament. The Old Testament actually shows this in other places. So, again, we're going to understand our Bible a little bit more here. So, um, how many remember this story? If you don't, that's okay, because we're going to read it. The Philistines and the five golden objects. If you don't remember, that's all right. We have it right here. Let's take a look. Now, we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. I'm going to start in chapter 5. 1 Samuel, chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 5. So, again, you can read along in yours or follow up here. So, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the god of israel Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land so what's going on is um, they've got Um the, the, they've they've captured the ark and now that they have the ark down in, in philistia um, they're they're all of a sudden they're getting tumors on their bodies um, and they're connecting these tumors to to mice um, and so what they're saying is they're 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 trying to figure out how do we get rid of this? And they said what well, we're getting tumors and they're connected to mice So let's take gold and make images of tumors in mice and let's give these as an offering to god to the god of israel And let's glorify him who's clearly afflicting us because we have his ark now now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. And take, uh, take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put in, a, uh, put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up uh, on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not... Then you shall know that it is not his hand that struck us it happened to us by coincidence We'll know that we've been struck by god if if it goes in the way that would lead it back to its homeland All right, so the men did so they took two milk cows They yoked them to the cart and they shut up their calves at home And they put the ark of the lord on the cart in the box of the golden mice and images of their tumors And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. I love that detail there. (laughs) That's right. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Bethshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, so uh, and and the, they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the cart. They were smart by getting the Levites, by the way. There's another story where they didn't get the Levites, and yeah, you know when David was moving it. Um, uh, they took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord, uh, that day to the Lord. Um, there, these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashad, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, Gath and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of Philistines, I don't keep reading the story, um, so... What's going on here? The Philistines made objects that look like what? Their affliction. They look like their affliction that they would receive from Yahweh, and they offered them as an as a offering to Yahweh to receive healing from the affliction. But that's not the only story. But wait, that's not all. Yes, there's more, but these aren't as long stories, so we'll do these pretty quick. We, got, we have a Moses and Elisha doing something similar, um, or Elisha is probably a better way to say it. Um, they're both are purifying water with things that would normally taint water They're purifying with something that would normally taint it, right? Um, so here's moses doing it. This is in exodus 15 and he cried to the lord and The lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet Not only if you take a log and throw it in the water, it makes it dirty not sweet So he's, he's he's taking it's afflicted water He's taking something of affliction and putting in it and now it's healed Fascinating. Um, Elisha does something similar. Elisha. Um, the right way Elisha to say it. So then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it. How many think throwing salt in water purifies it? Who think it's good drinking water? Now you put salt in it. Uh, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. You, if you drink salt water, what happens? You die, you will throw up, you get sick. You, yes so uh uh Alicia received no instruction from god to proceed as he did and so he apparently believed god and and would empower the gesture so it brings us to the serpent on the pole what's god doing here he's using familiar cultural ideas to communicate an offer of divine deliverance to the israelites they, they thought this way. They understood this way. He's using what was culturally familiar to them to communicate something to them. He's trying to reach them. God is doing narrative theology in real life. He's, he's taking from the narrative of their culture, of their life, and, and acting in a way that they understand it. Because he wants a real and personal relationship with us, he interacts with us from the way that we from from uh, a way that we understand. Now, there's also symbolism going on here. There's also symbolism going on here. And wait till you see how this all ties together when we get to the end. We're almost there, actually. When I say almost, it's almost from a preacher standard. Let me put it that way. (laughs) Because some of us will hear almost and think that means two minutes. So sorry, I didn't mean that. Oh, dear wife of mine! <laughs> love you <laughs> All right, Also symbolism. So the Israelites, like other Semitic peoples, associated serpents actually with life and healing. You see, we automatically went to the serpent in the garden. but but ancient Semitic peoples didn't see serpents as as, as um, primarily as a symbol of death. They actually saw them as associated with life and healing. So snakes were thought to have regenerative healing powers. Why? Because they shed their skins. They regenerate. They regenerate. So serpent images are literally common motif throughout the ancient Near Eastern art. All over the place. Um, you, You have storage jars. Often had imagery of serpents on it. Why? You want to ward off theft and spoil you don't want it to spoil you want it to stay fresh um you go to the the greek god of healing anybody know who the greek god of healing is asclepius now my kids will tell me i'm saying it wrong but that's the way i'm going to say it i'm say it with confidence so y'all know that's how you really say it it's asclepius like. <laughs> yeah um uh, it was he was depicted as a snake Now, what's interesting is all of us know that snake as a healing symbol. All of us do. It's the symbol for medical doctors. We see the same symbol in our own culture. The serpent wrapped around a pole. So the rod of Asclepius, a staff entwined by a snake, is still a symbol for medicine and healing today. There it is. That's two different ways it's depicted. There's other ways, but it's the same thing that's depicted. We use it in society all the time. So, Yahweh uses this symbol. What does he use it for? He is proclaiming his sovereignty over other gods by doing so. He is showing that he is sovereign over other gods. Serpents also symbolized protection. So they symbolized healing, regeneration. They also symbolized protection. So, if you go to ancient Egypt, the snake was an ever-present symbol in ancient Egypt. Where did they just come out of? Egypt! They just came out of Egypt. So they are very familiar with the motif of the snake. They saw all over the place. Um, uh, the Uraeus serpent on Pharaoh's crown. I mean, remember the picture. I'll show you. In fact, i have it here. You see that serpent up there? Not, we've all seen picture of Pharaoh's crown with that, that serpent on the front of it, Right? Um, uh, it's it what why why was it up there? It made him immune from harm. It, it meant he was able to heal Other other icons would say which show serpents as divine guardians So the serpent was used by moses. Why what's he doing? He's showing that god is superior to pharaoh You thought you thought pharaoh could bring you healing through a serpent. What's god going to do? You see, he's borrowing from these motifs to show his greatness, to show his sovereignty. Um, let's check this out in Exodus verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by making by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. How many know this story? Okay, So Moses and Aaron are going to go confront Pharaoh, and they have a staff. And, um, and one of the ways they're going to show the greatness of God is they're going to take that staff and they're going to throw it down. Why? Because the serpent is this huge, it's an important symbol. They're going to throw that serpent, uh, the, the staff down. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. The cool thing about that is, like, that's not a trick because Aaron didn't have, you know, it's like Aaron just was being obedient. He was just acting in faith. He just acting in faith. So this wooden staff actually becomes a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. God's speaking right from the beginning. He is going to not only destroy the power of Pharaoh, he's going to destroy the gods of Egypt. If you look carefully and you read the story, Israel was not only delivered from Egypt, they were delivered from the gods of Egypt. It says that in the text multiple times. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So notice something here. And I just threw this in. It's kind of a little extra tidbit here. Notice as even he sees the power of God in front of him. It's it's a heart that's right before God that repents, not one who sees something. It's a heart that repents. Now, seeing helps, but if the heart's not right, seeing won't matter. All right. So Yahweh, not Pharaoh, had power over the natural and divine worlds and the authority to dispense or withhold judgment or mercy. He was truly God. Pharaoh was an amateur magician. All right. You see that going on? All right. So... Why is all that important? Because that's, these are the exact messages that are coming out, not only in Numbers, but also in John when Jesus is referencing himself. It's not the gods of the world who are powerful. It's not turning to the pharaohs of the world that are the rulers of the world or the powers and the principalities. It's turning to the one who was sovereign over them. By referring to this story that has all of this meaning into it, he is reflecting all of that meaning onto himself. Just as the serpent was lifted up, just as the serpent is a symbol of healing, just as the serpent is a symbol of protection, just uh, uh, just as God shows he is sovereign through this serpent, lift up the Son of Man and see what he will do in bringing eternal life. Now, all of a sudden, we're not thinking about a serpent in a garden. We're thinking about what the Israelites were thinking when Jesus is talking. We're reading our Bible like a Mediterranean uh, uh, Jew of the first century. Yahweh was not a God with which to trifle. Yahweh was not a God with which to trifle. God commands natural forces to punish the faithlessness. This is the story here. He's got natural forces, these venomous snakes. They're punishing the faithless. The venomous snakes were sent against the Israelites. God has what? He has the power to reverse it. And he offers divine healing through a bronze serpent. But there's one condition. He doesn't just offer healing. There's a condition. There's a condition. What's the condition? The Israelites had to exercise faith in order to receive his offer of healing. They had to exercise faith. Being bitten, even though the bronze serpent was there and available for healing, would not help anyone who didn't, in faith, turn up and look at it. How do you know it was faith? Because they looked at it. Faith means they are acting on it. They believed it. So, Heiser, this is Heiser here. Jesus uses... Um, How does Jesus use this test? He uses this for the obedience of faith. He says, all who have eternal life are those who believe in me. But he's saying that that belief takes action. In the same way they had to look up at that serpent, if you don't actually look up to the Son of Man and receive him, then that eternal life that he brings you does you nothing. Nothing. He creates a fitting analogy to his own destiny. Death, the natural world's most consuming force. Is there anything more consuming in the natural world than death? No. That's the last enemy, Paul says, 1 Corinthians. The last enemy is death. Would be reversed for all who look to Jesus as he was raised up on the pole of the cross. If only the afflicted would believe. If you look up, then death itself is reversed. What's that serpent that bit you going to do? It's going to bring God's judgment God's, because why? The wages of sin is death. How are you set free? When you look in faith to the one he has raised up to bring life. Is that not cool? I mean, see how the whole Bible is meant to be understood together? See how all this weaves together this story all the way back in numbers has something to do with what john's writing in one verse I just think that's so cool All right So we've done some bible study tonight. Let's pray And then we'll uh, we've got some time to actually uh, Have some conversation. So we'll have some conversation. You can ask some questions if you want and bring up any of the stuff We've been studying and we can talk about it, but we will wait till Brian turns this off first. Or is, uh, is he not back there? Brian, you back there? I will wait till Sally turns this off first. <laughs> but let's pray while she's walking back there. Father, we bless you. We thank you for your word, your amazing, incredible word, and all that is that is that is in there, that is hidden in there, as that you desire for us to 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 mine and to dig and to make these connections, so that we would uh, see your word as a, as a treasure to be hunted for and to be received. Father, I pray the blessing of your word would be on each one this year, that, it, that our hearts would be lifted up, be edified, as, to see how you have um, so put your word together in a way that it all connects beginning to end. In order to bring us eternal life. In order to show your sovereignty throughout history, throughout time. In order to show your path. Father, may we be excited to study the word. To know you more. To know you through it. Moved by the power of your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, let me know when we're turn, shut down.